I am Debbie Georgettis. Thank you for joining me on my show, America Can We Talk? Today we're going to talk about a Texas candidate hosting a fundraiser for anti-Semite Representative Ilhan Omar. Attorney General Barr testifies in Congress today and the Spygate Move On mission is launched at last in California. The education establishment loses its attack on a just rock star charter school. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome again to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis, and welcome to today's first five, although it's going to be a little longer than five. We've talked in the show several times about Representative Ilhan Omar. She's a Democrat representative in the United States Congress from the state of Minnesota. She has been famous for many anti-Semitic comments, insinuations. She has been rebuked a little bit by the Democrat Party, and she continues on. She is a Somali-American. She came to America from the country of Somali. She is Muslim, and she is a, a, a very proud Muslim um, and is advocates in favor of the Palestinians against Israel. So she's been a, a controversial in Washington since the time she arrived in Congress. I want to mention some things I learned about her before I turn to telling you about a Texas candidate who actually supported and went to a fundraiser for her in November prior to Ilhan Omar's election to the United States Congress. But on Representative Ilhan Omar, there are a few things I just did not know and I I find just, just shocking when I think about what she really stands for given that she is serving in the United States Congress. The world, as all we've talked about many times, is dealing with profound tension between Islamic aggression all over Western Europe, all over the UK, all over Africa, Islamic aggression against Christians and certainly against Jewish people all over the world. And the battle is on behalf of the Western civilization, of of America, of Judeo-Christian civilization, to push back or defend ourselves against Islamic aggression being expressed all over the world. So, Ilhan Omar, prior to the time she began serving in the United States Congress, served in the Minnesota State Legislature. And during that time, serving as a, a representative of her district, which, by the way, I should say, Minnesota has the largest Somalian refugee population of any state in America. Uh, Many of the, in fact, Lutheran social services, other uh, Christian-based social services have helped to relocate refugees from Somalia, fleeing violence there, into Minnesota. So Minnesota has a very large Somalian population. That population is the uh, group that elected her Ilhan Omar first to the Minnesota legislature and then to the United States Congress. So in the fall of 2017, while Ilhan Omar was still a representative in the state legislature in Minnesota, not even a member of Congress yet, she met with the president of Turkey, the president of the country of Turkey in a private meeting. And that president's name is Erdogan. We've talked about him on the show many times. Uh, he is a um, turning that country further and further toward fundamentalist Islam. 
further and further away from an open society where freedom of religion is honored. She had a private meeting with Erdogan in the fall of 2017, reportedly discussed foreign policy, encouraging Turkey to help this uh, certain group within Somalia. I mean, she was acting on behalf or speaking on behalf of the Somalian Muslim population and with a foreign leader. So she's a, a state rep who gets a meeting with with him, which is pretty darn amazing by itself. People in her own party, the Democrat Party in Washington, many of them have criticized um, Erdogan many times, called him out as a dangerous person, called him out, condemned Turkey for much of the violence committed on behalf of Islam uh, at the behest of the country of Turkey. But here we are, Ilhan Omar has a meeting with him. So, but her party says nothing. No one in her party, no one in the leaders, none of the leaders of the Democrat side in the Senate or the House say a word about the fact that she actually would go meet with Erdogan, um, who is representing the uh, country, who is the president of Turkey and a, a, a very dangerous, and Turkey is uh, seen by many in the world as going, uh, just sinking down into the depths of Islamization, of Islamic takeover. She's uh, been widely known, Ilhan Omar, for a multitude of of anti-Semitic comments, remarks. They kind of go on and on. I'm not going to recount them again today because we've talked about them many times. But Erdogan, the president of Turkey, has a very fond and close relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood, which he helps to support, along with Hamas, a terror organization, Hamas being affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood. So Erdogan, supporter of Muslim Brotherhood, supporter of Hamas, the terror organization that kills Jews all over the world and Christians, this is, these are groups that Erdogan openly and, and without regret, or without hesitation, supports. So she meets with him. She also herself, Ilhan Omar, has met with and spoken on behalf of very questionable organizations, one being CARE. And you all likely know the name CARE, the name of the organization. CARE is the Council on American Islamic Relations. CARE was an unindicted co-conspirator in the trial in America, um, in, in actually in the great state of Texas, which was getting after money being sent to, the, um, to terrorists around the world. The point is CARE... As my friend John Guandolo has explained on the show, CARE is affiliated with Hamas, or he says CARE is Hamas. CARE is the Muslim Brotherhood. So Ilhan Omar, very supportive, speaking at, in fact, some of the remarks she made recently, which were, were offensive, were in a speech she made to CARE. CARE supports Hamas, a terror organization that kills Jews around the world. Ilhan Omar supports care and supports Turkey and their connection with the Muslim Brotherhood. And so, you know, there, it's just a, um, we've gone in the past into detail in the show about how Hamas, the connections between these uh, Islamic-related organizations, but Hamas, founded in, 19, in 1987, an outgrowth of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood now on the cusp of finally being designated by the United States of America as a terror organization. There's been talk for, 
I don't know, decades about whether or not America should designate the Muslim Brotherhood as a terror group. And of course, many people who support the Muslim Brotherhood say, oh, no, they shouldn't do that. Care fights against it. President Trump is finally apparently going to designate or take, begin the steps to designate the Muslim Brotherhood as a terror organization. So this is where we stand with who Erdogan is, who Muslim Brotherhood is, who CARE is, and how Hamas is intermixed and intertangled with all of them. So now I turn to the Texas state candidate I mentioned at the outset. We have our uh, non-federal elections right now in Texas. We have elections for mayors and city councils and, and uh, elections like that. In Texas, we have an election in the city of Plano for city council. And this is a hotly contested election. And since this is a national show, I'm going to tell you a little tiny bit about Plano politics. In Plano, you pretty much can't win as a Democrat. Because it's, you know, at least in name, it's a Republican city. It's a Republican city council. So there are organizations that put candidates forward who are, have an R by their name because you have to have an R to win, but they are not really candidates who stand for the Republican agenda. So you have the kind of pretend Republicans and the real Republicans. But in Plano, there is a woman running, and this I believe the third time she's run, running for Plano City Council. And her name is Ann Bacchus. She is a Muslim, and she is running for city council. And she, in the November of 2018, this past year, prior to the elections which swept Ilhan Omar into the United States Congress, Ann Bacchus, candidate for Plano City Council, participated in and spoke at a fundraiser in Plano, or in Richardson, Texas, but for Ilhan Omar. I want to show you the pictures of the two of them. I have pictures of both of them. Here are the, both these ladies at this, uh, this uh, fundraiser for Ilhan Omar. Now, I can't tell. I look at the screen <laughs> left and right, but the woman who has the hijab on her head, that's Ilhan Omar. The other woman is Ann Bacchus. So this is Ann Bacchus willing to publicly speak at a fundraiser for Ilhan Omar, who had already, at the time of this fundraiser, had dozens of anti-Semitic and other offensive statements made in public, had already met with Erdogan, had already sided with the Palestinians against Israel. Many anti-Semitic statements made by Ilhan Omar. And I just want to ask you this question. Why do you think that story was hidden for so long? We are now, we finished in Texas, early voting ended yesterday. Our actual election is this coming Saturday where it'll be decided whether Ann Bacchus wins this seat on the Plano City Council. Why would it be that the fact that she held a fundraiser, spoke at a fundraiser for probably the top anti-Semite, at least the most famous anti-Semite in the United States Congress, why would that never have been in the news? You have to dig to find the story. You have to dig to figure out that Ann Bacchus is supporting Ilhan Omar, profoundly proud anti-Semite, openly, someone who's openly supporting the CARE organization, speaks at their events, even though CARE is directly affiliated with Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood. Again, Muslim Brotherhood about to be designated a terror organization. 
one of the reasons that we don't have the media covering this story is because in America, it's very, very difficult to get the media to cover anything that might possibly have that media outlet characterized as Islamophobic, characterized as a hater or mean-spirited or intolerant or not embracing diversity. There's so much of an effort to protect against possible expressions of Islamophobia that voters in Plano don't realize they might be electing to the Plano City Council someone who's pretty darn happy with CARE and Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood and who's fine with the anti-Semitic attitude of Representative Ilhan Omar. I'm going to ask you to think for a moment. If this were a candidate who had instead, for example, decided to have a fundraiser and speak on behalf of, oh, I don't know, David Duke, some other widely rejected, widely denounced hater, you would have plenty of news coverage. Frankly, if you walked in the same room at some event and David Duke happened to be there and you were a candidate, somebody would run a news story saying, well, you know, he or she went to some event and David Duke was just down the hall uh, at another event. Anywhere in the same building would, would inspire some reporter to attack the candidate. But somehow here in Texas... We have a candidate who is openly Muslim, but she is running for city council, having supported Ilhan Omar, never having denounced Ilhan Omar's anti-Semitism, never having denounced Hamas, Muslim Brotherhood, CARE, any of these groups that Ilhan Omar apparently is very happy with and is willing to support. And these are serious, serious times. We have, we're watching what's happened in Western Europe, watching what's happened in the UK, when you have this, this spread of Islamic aggression all over Western Europe, all over uh, the UK, where you have the pressure from the conquest ideology of Islam to not just say, we should get to move into your country and retain our religious faith, but the Islamic conquest mindset that says, we are going to be aggressive. We are going to engage in the civilization, the cultural jihad that forces Islamic beliefs to be not just tolerated, but in fact accepted, humored, and given precedence over the values of Western uh, countries. This is why we have, for example, in the show, uh, I don't know when it was, a month ago or so, we had on the show two people, stellar interviews in studio. One was Katie Hopkins a British citizen who came to America to try to warn America about the Islamization happening in the UK, how they have lost certain areas all over the UK because they have neighborhoods who have become no-go zones, neighborhoods where Islamic immigrants have moved in, taken over, uh, demanded they are the government there, they are in control, do not allow the police and the fire and other emergency services to enter those areas without permission of the Muslim authority where they impose Sharia, Islamic law, instead of the law of the UK where they are living. We had Katie Hopkins on this show. You can find her the day she was here. And if you're on our Facebook page, you can scroll down to it. If you're on our, my website, you can find it easily. If you're on YouTube, you can look back and see this interview with Katie Hopkins. Also, Elizabeth Sabadich wolf was in the studio with me, an Austrian uh, woman, Austrian citizen, who was criminally prosecuted by her own country for saying out loud in Austria in a public meeting that Muhammad, 
the founder of Islam, married a six-year-old, and consummated the marriage when the girl was nine. She was not prosecuted for libel, for defamation, for lying, because that is a true statement. She was prosecuted for saying something that offends the sensibilities of Muslims. That was a crime in Austria. And so I raise the question. I want to urge you to listen to those interviews and think about the fact that both of those ladies pointed out the media in Western Europe, the media in the UK, are loath to print any story that is even mildly critical of Islam, will not report truth about stories, even when violence occurs, the newspapers and even the police and other authorities will not make reference to the fact that the attacker committed the crime, committed the act, in the name of Islam, yelling Allahu Akbar at the time they were doing it. Media are too silent in Western Europe, too silent in the UK, too silent in London. Don't speak up. And you end up having the people like Katie Hopkins and Elizabeth Savage Wolf crying out to the world saying, please let us tell you what's happening in our countries. Don't let it happen in America. And so now we come back to a Plano City Council candidate who chose, out of all the things she could have been doing, all the events she could have gone to, not only to attend, but to speak at, to advocate at, the, an event supporting Ilhan Omar. This, my friends, is a dangerous, dangerous thing. And what's most dangerous is you don't have the media in America even reporting it. And that, my friends, is my first five for today. Now I want to turn and talk with you about what's happening in Washington today. You probably saw Attorney General Barr was testifying today in the United States Senate. And I am telling you, the free-for-all has begun. And I don't mean really free-for-all. What I, I mean is what's happening in Washington is that the effort of the Democrat media mob, the elected Democrats in the Senate and the House, in the media who are trying to support them, are trying to already engage in mischaracterization, twisting around the outcome of the Mueller investigation into the non-existent Trump-Russia collusion and still trying to look for an enemy to tell the public the enemy is, and now the enemy of the Democrats and the media, is Attorney General Barr. He's trying, he's answering their questions related to the release of the Mueller report. And I know you probably know this, but just in case you don't, the Mueller report, the result of over two years of investigation, the result of something in the range of $35 million, 19 anti-Trump attorneys on the, the Mueller team, and you had whatever it was, over 500 depositions, you had hundreds of thousands of hours of testimony, and you had documents collected. And after all of the digging and groping and, and just working as, just digging in as deeply as they can, the Mueller report found no Trump-Russia collusion. And on the obstruction charge, Mueller said, you know, I, nothing here that seems actionable, but left it in the hands of the attorney general who said that's ridiculous. Of course, there's nothing here to constitute to justify a charge of obstruction of justice. So Trump got cleared by the Mueller report, but the Democrats cannot let this go. So they're kind of on two separate tacks, the Democrats. The one tack is they are working very hard to vilify the attorney general, the new attorney general, Barr. 
and on the separate track is they're on to this can we move on and let's not dare let Barr dig in and tell everyone in the country tell the world in the country what happened inside the FBI and the Department of Justice during the time that the entire Trump Russia collusion was cooked up out of nothing inside the FBI and Department of Justice they're trying to imply that Barr needs to drop it, let it go, he shouldn't be doing, doing any more investigation. At the same time, they're trying to vilify him. I'm going to tell you some of the steps the Democrats are taking to do this. First of all, they're out of their minds with the idea that they promised their voters, many Democrat candidates, elected officials, promise their voting base. Everything is going to be, we're going to get Trump, we're going to get rid of him. He's not legitimate. He's not the real president. We had a show a few weeks ago where I went through all the ways. In fact, one of the shows I did from California, we were, on, we were out visiting family, but all the ways in which the Trump-Mueller investigation really hurt America. And all of that was designed by the Democrats who ultimately, they assumed and hoped, give them some basis to impeach the president because they could not get real with, they could not embrace the reality that Trump won the 2016 elections fair and square without the collusion of the Russians as the allegation was. But what's happening today in Congress, so Barr is testifying and several things that were just unbelievable, unbelievable manipulation by the left to set this hearing up. So what happened when Mueller finally finished his report, his, his, his special counsel you know, for the FBI, he finished his report, he gives it to uh, Attorney General Barr. Barr, because the public is clamoring for it, issued a four-page summary of the Mueller report, essentially saying that Mueller found no collusion, no basis for obstruction charge. Very, very clear, very succinct, very high-quality writing by Barr and whoever helped him write it. And so the first thing that came out really for today for Americans to realize is that Mueller, that Robert Mueller, wrote a letter, or to be more precise, it appears Andrew Weissman, the truly, truly egregious character, just just the most malicious character, maybe on the whole Mueller team, appears to have written this letter. But this letter from Mueller to Barr was written and sent in late March, saying essentially that he, Mueller, thought that the way the report was characterized uh, led the people or didn't give the people adequate understanding what really happened um, in the um, uh, in with the, in the whole Mueller investigation kind of whining about the way Barr summarized the Mueller uh, investigation but at this point here we are the whole Mueller report has been released to the public with the exception of small portions redacted as required by law because they involve items still under investigation where there may be some compromising of the system if that information is out. So the public has the whole Mueller report. Congress has the whole Mueller report. But the media, and again, you talk about you talk about the Mueller, Rosenstein, Comey cabal inside the FBI working feverishly to destroy President Trump. They had this letter from Mueller, excuse me, they had this letter yeah, from Mueller to Barr since late March, but they wait till last night, the night before Barr is about to testify, to leak the letter 
to the American public and, of course, leak it to the Washington Post and New York Times. So Barr shows up for his testimony today with the media backdrop of everyone talking about, well, you know, Mueller is kind of criticizing Barr. Barr didn't really do a very fair job. He should have said this, not that, blah, blah, blah. So this is the media trying to set up Barr before he even walks in the door to testify in the Senate today. Again, this ongoing effort of the Democrat media mob in this country to destroy President Trump. This is still the ongoing coup, the ongoing effort to overthrow the 2016 election because the Democrat media mob didn't want Trump to win. But back to Barr today. So this le- the letter that, that Mueller wrote complaining is the backdrop. I want to actually play a couple of things, though, that are a little bit uh, illuminating. Um, one is that what the uh, this is a clip by um, Joe DeGeneva, and he's now kind of the prominent uh, figure uh, lawyer in this country, really the prominent figure in this country, who is able to give with legal authority and legal clarity what is really happening. I'm going to play a quote by Lindsey Graham in a minute, but the first thing I want to do involves Joe DeGeneva. And again, he's one whose name was floated when they were looking for a new attorney general and they, they Jeff Sessions was gone. And uh, people, I think a lot of people would have liked uh, Joe DeGeneva to do that job. He was not in a position because he had conflicts of interest because he has some clients who are somehow connected with the Mueller thing. But he is really probably the lawyer of the most stature and clarity. I want to have you listen to hear how he describes the letter that was written by the, um, it was really written by Mueller slash um, this, uh, go ahead, let let him tell you what he had to say. Sorry, go ahead. The bottom line here is that this is a continuation of a very bad process that Bob Mueller started by hiring a bunch of Democrats and having them led by Andrew Weissman, who showed up at Hillary Clinton's so-called victory party and broke into tears with her. This is an abusive, outrageous, vindictive, unethical, unprofessional letter that was written for Mueller by Weissman. Uh, the, The attorney general released the entire report except for the portions that the law prohibits. What does Mueller want him to do? He published Mueller's outrageously poorly written handiwork, the report. (laughs) So I'm not quite sure what Mueller's problem is. Okay, I love that guy. He is just so, so good. We've had on this show in the past Sidney Powell, who is a prominent U.S. attorney, uh, you know, youngest uh, U.S. prosecutor ever appointed, uh, author of a book called License to Lie. She's close friends with DeGeneva, and that was his wife staying next to him. She's a lawyer also. But the point is, uh, Sidney Powell has said he, this guy, DeGeneva, really gets it all. He gets the whole thing from the beginning. What was cooked up inside the DOJ, the FBI, cooked up to attack President Trump to try to take him down and all the pieces of evidence we've talked about in this show many, 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 many times. The text messages between, um, uh, uh, what's his name, Strzok, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, you know, the, the emails they now have, the ongoing, just seeming actual collusion inside the FBI to destroy President Trump, the use of the fake dossier that was just completely debunked, but use of that dossier to get the FISA court to issue warrants to spy on people affiliated with President Trump. I mean, this was a coup attempt from inside the FBI and Department of Justice. And yet, where we sit now on May 1st, 2019, after President Trump has put up with 
you know, two plus years of headlines, accusations, and leaks is that Democrats still cannot let this go, still cannot fathom the idea that they need to move forward and pretend that they are grown-ups functioning in Congress and move forward making policies. Instead, they are fixated on somehow trying to destroy President Trump. So, Today, in Barr's testimony, there was a clip from Lindsey Graham, the newly surprising and assertive Lindsey Graham, where he, uh, I'll let you hear what he had to say. I'm going to say this caused a bunch of Democrats, I think, to, to uh, get a little, to shake in the booth a little bit. Here's Lindsey Graham. We're going to, in a bipartisan way, I hope, deal with Russia. But when the Mueller report is put to bed, and it soon will be, this committee is going to look long and hard at how this all started. We're going to look at the FISA warrant process. Did Russia provide Christopher Steele the information about Trump that turned out to be garbage that was used to get a warrant on an American system, citizen? And if so, how did the system fail? Okay, most of you know Lindsey Graham. I, I used to joke about him, and I, and I, I like to take back everything I ever said, because Lindsey Graham is stepping up. Now, I will tell you, I read a, a, a kind of uh, upsetting report about Lindsey Graham, which is he seems to have floated the idea that maybe there was just a completely innocent confusion within the FBI and Department of Justice that maybe they, the FBI, all these players you've been talking about, Comey and Strzok and Page and Rosenstein and all these folks, that maybe they were also duped by the Russians and that actually everything they did was innocent and innocently motivated because they, after all, they just didn't realize that, you know, the Russians were playing them. So this is the argument that some people are saying. It appears that Lindsey Graham may actually be uh, embracing. Now, he sounded pretty good there. He's saying, we're going to figure this out. Attorney General Barr has also said, we are going to find out what happened inside the Department of Justice and the FBI. We're not going to let this entire just... I mean, it was, um, friends, it was a coup. It was an attempt to overthrow the 2016 election by falsely accusing the duly elected president of a conspiracy with the Russians, which never existed. If we cannot, in this country, find the fortitude, the determination to dig to the bottom, to understand the role each of these people played, why they used the Russian dossier, the Hillary Clinton DNC paid for Russian dossier to dupe the FISA court into giving them warrants to go spy on Trump's allies. If we don't have the fortitude to figure that out, we are surrendering the rule of law in this country. I am not being melodramatic. I am not exaggerating. You have these ruling class elite people in Washington who pulled off this stunt against President Trump, and it even preceded, we've talked about it before, so I'm not going to dive into it today, but it even preceded the whole Russian dossier, which really is when most Americans became familiar with what was ongoing. The wrongdoing inside those agencies was occurring as early as early 2016, and it appears even to 2015, where the FBI, the NSA database, was essentially weaponized against the American people, used by people in the Obama administration, to as a source of spying on their political enemies. Even that is what Barr needs to dig in, find out what happened, and be willing 
if justified, to, to file criminal charges, to pursue indictments, to bring these people to justice. Because what you're really seeing in all of that, you know, pinging the NSA database and spying on Americans, and then the whole Trump-Russia collusion hoax cooked up inside, and then the willingness of the parties inside the FBI and the Department of Justice to keep it up, to keep d digging, to keep investigating, what you're really seeing is that clinging to power of the ruling elite class, the deep state, the people who think they run this country and you, the voters, do not. That's what we were seeing inside the FBI, inside the Department of Justice. That's what we're seeing in Washington today in the hearts and minds and the actions of the Democrats inside the Senate committees who will not simply say, oh, you mean we, we found the facts? We know the facts? Okay, let's move on. We don't have Democrats able to do that. We do not have them right now willing to go with the truth and willing to say, okay, we figured it out and now we're going to move on. In fact, in addition to this cooked up scheme by whoever it was, it's certainly Mueller and, and um, who all the other players are, but Mueller and uh, Andrew Weissman and uh, Comey of the, the letter criticizing Barr. And then there, were, there have also been efforts by the Democrats in the Senate to instigate an investigation of Attorney General Barr. They're so determined to not let the light of day come to what happened inside the FBI, so determined to distract Americans' attention away from what was so wrong there and instead encourage Americans to start thinking maybe Attorney General Barr is the guy, maybe he's the problem, maybe we've got to investigate him. Folks, these are times where we need the quality of person Attorney General Barr has so far turned out to be. He's been willing to say, I don't get pushed around, I follow the law, I call, you know, two plus two is four in his book, and he's going to say, these are the facts, these are the law, therefore this is my conclusion. So uh, a lot left to battle in this, but um, this whole, I, I'm going to tell you, this won't be the end of the argument by the left that the entire thing, even if it was entirely exposed, what they, what they did to Trump inside the FBI Department of Justice, there will still be the effort of some to claim, well, but they just got duped by the Russians themselves. This, Russian disinformation argument will continue. The Democrat media mob will continue to argue, even if there was nothing to it, and even if they were, you know, uh, on a wild goose chase. It was a, comp a completely innocent wild goose chase. It was, it was disinformation. The Russians fooled them too, you know. And there's that's no, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Blah blah. Move on. We cannot agree to move on from this kind of conduct. And last for today, I want to hit a story. I just love this story. This is a story out of California. And in California, this is a just, this is a feel good, love America story. But it also is a story about there are actually great, great people in this country still willing to do the right thing, even at great risk to themselves. So in California, there was a, a school system, uh, a, a charter school set up called the American Indian Public Charter Schools. I'll say it again, American Indian Public Charter Schools. So AIPCS, AIPCS. 
So th these were set up back in 1996. The whole goal of these this charter school set up for the American Indian, uh, for American Indian students, um, was to give them a place to come to school, to be together, to be, you know, to, to bond and to supposedly help them uh, with their, because they claimed that the students were performing poorly and that poor performance was entirely due um, to, um, you know, to, to bias and uh, poverty and, and everything else in our country. Well, so that school was started in 1996. A principal came to the school uh, a few years later named Ben Chavez, C-H-A-V-I-S. We have his picture to show you. Ben Chavez himself is an American Indian. Uh, I forgotten the name. I didn't actually recognize the name of the tribe. But anyway, he's an American Indian also. He came to become principal of this school. So when he arrived at the AIPCS, American Indian Public Charter School, as he says, it was a mess. In 2009, he wrote a memoir called Crazy Like a Fox. He is talking about what the problem was at the school when he arrived there. They had the highest dropout rate, the lowest attendance and graduation rates of any ethnic group in the whole city. By the way, this is all occurring in Oakland, California, not a particularly prosperous area. So Oakland, California, they had these charter schools to help American Indian students. He describes the conduct, what he came to when he came to this school. He was describing this school as, he said it was a mess, broken windows, holes in the walls, the gymnasium was carpeted and cluttered with garbage. Food wrappers, cigarette butts, empty beer bottles lined the curb outside the school. Truancy was rampant. The kids spent more time in the corridors than in classes. They had sex, the kids, in the bathrooms and underneath the stairwells. They got high in a nearby tool shed. They had fights that broke out regularly. It wasn't uncommon for students to sneak out of school in the middle of the day and return to class drunk. So this guy, Ben Chavez, comes to the school to become the principal of this American Indian Public Charter Schools. What he did, he chose to focus, and, and by the way, the school's founders, the kind of classes they chose to focus on for this, this effort to help American Indian kids get a better education, they focus on bead making, drumming, and self-esteem instead of reading and math. Classes at the school uh, began later. They actually had classes start later in the day for this school because they said American Indian kids couldn't get up early in the morning. They called it Indian time. Well, Chavez came to the school and this he was having none of it. He came to the school and essentially fired a bunch of the faculty the faculty who thought they were there to make kids feel good and have high self-esteem and hired faculty who would help kids learn and returned academic subjects to the school's priorities, eliminated classes such as bead making, which didn't really belong in the public schools. He also demanded timeliness, timely arrival, shifted the schedule back to normal start time, demanded class attendance, was not hesitant to embarrass students if they misbehaved. He instilled discipline and he brought the school around. This Chavez had to actually convince the school, the people who ran this charter school, to let him do it, let him try this. He replaced the teachers, as he said, with smart and dependable teachers. By 2004, 
These students, same school, by 2004, almost all the students qualify for free or reduced price lunch. They had achieved higher math and reading standardized test scores than students at any other public school in Oakland. He brought the test scores up in reading and math. He then went on to open two more charter schools, a high school, a second middle school. In 2008, the high school ranked fourth in the state in academic performance. He was unrelenting about discipline. We're going to have normal school here at AIPCS. So he had discipline put in place. And as you might imagine, he ultimately became very popular with the parents and the students. It's kind of a modern day to serve with love story. He said, we can be better than this. We're not going to have chaos and, and dilapidating school and poor perform, poorly performing students. We can do, we do, you deserve better students. You deserve a good school. So his, so anyway, this was such a transli- transition that um, he came to the attention of the um, Oakland school board. Because you got to believe the Oakland Public School Board did not like being shown up. They did not like having someone who comes from the charter school, it, it comes to a charter school and turns it around. He ended up having uh, these, this Oakland School Board, threatened by his success, launched an investigation into him, and then uh, ultimately resulted in having that they launched an investigation uh, into him. And then they had in 2017, because this investigation where they're digging into paperwork and blah, 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 2017, he's formally charged, charged like, like as a, with a crime of mail fraud, money laundering and conflicts of interest, all related to federal grants he received on behalf of AIPCS. He didn't steal the money. He didn't misuse the money. He didn't do anything wrong. What he what got to the school board people was he showed them how returning to basics and demanding discipline and believing in students and treating them as they, though they are worthy of respect and worthy of being trusted, worthy of being treated well, worthy of being educated, he embarrassed the Oakland Public School, which launched this investigation, ends up in a federal prosecution. Um, and so all of the charges against him relating to forms filled out to get federal grants. Well, just last week, so the end of April 2019, the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco quietly dropped all the charges of financial impropriety against Mr. Chavez. He pleaded guilty to one little thing, a technical violation unrelated to any of the initial allegations because on one form, he had used a name on a document without getting the person's permission. That's what he pled guilty. It was a big nothing burger. But the point is, and he got you know nothing, got 12 months probation. But at this point, he had to leave to defend these charges against him. He had to leave the charter school to defend the charges against him. And I, I raised this story because, number one, it's a feel-good story that a guy like Ben Chavez would decide to take on the task, the seemingly overwhelming, impossible task of turning around charter schools because he believes in the students at that school. 
because he wasn't willing to treat students just because they happened to be of American Indian background as though they couldn't possibly learn and they couldn't be punctual and they could not meet rigorous academic standards. He turned the school around and it's another lesson for Americans to pay attention to. The only motivation of the Oakland School Board in launching an investigation of him was not because they care about students, not because they're trying to do the right thing, but because he showed them up. He showed them how returning to good standards and right standards, standards respectful of students, would result, would bring great results. He made them look foolish in all of their, I'm going to guess, left-wing education, educrat mindset. So ultimately he won, won for the good guys. I hope that others in this country can model what he did in these publics, in this charter school uh, in California. And now, for, at the end of the show, I always love to tell you why it matters to you. I'm going to have to do these quickly because my happy, wonderful producers tell me we're almost out of time. On the Texas City uh, Council election, Ilhan Omar met privately with the repressive terrorism-supporting Hamas-funding leader of Turkey, Recep Erdogan, to discuss international policy. No Democrat said a word, even though many Democrats have criticized Erdogan as repressive and a terrorist. Representative Omar also spoke at and supports CARE, the PR branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, and a co-conspirator with Hamas. President Trump is moving closer right now to designating the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization. Next slide, please. It's that Representative Ilhan Omar that Plano City Council candidate Ann Bacchus chose to support in a fundraiser in 2018. It matters that a candidate supports CARE and the Muslim Brotherhood. We're allowed to talk about it on the Mueller and Barr letter, why it matters to you, the Mueller and Comey and Rosenstein cabal still at it. Time to spin this letter from Mueller to Barr to spin the news cycle before Barr testifies. Nothing in it, nothing worth talking about, nothing burger letter, no collusion, no obstruction, no misrepresentation by Barr, but understand this is not the time to move on. The deep state coup attempt is ongoing, leaks, lies, and spin to damage Trump. Next slide, please. And support for charter schools. Charter schools are one form of school choice, and kids thrive in the best ones. Competition breeds quality. This is why the Oakland School Board got so upset. Some public school boards feel threatened by competition from charter schools and will do almost anything to stop the competition. But the final point, and the great point about that story, is America is still filled with good people trying to help others, like Ben Chavez the man who took over the American Indian Public Charter School in Oklahoma, Oakland, California. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This is America Can We Talk. I love talking with you every day about preserving the, this extraordinary experiment in human liberty, America, which is directly under siege in many, many ways in our times. Please tune in every day, 3 p.m. Central Time, Monday through Thursday. Please speak up for America in your lives because America matters. Can we talk truth about America? Can you